is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. If you like the extra space on the airline that comes with an empty middle seat, CDC trying to keep you comfortable and uh, maybe safe. They have a new study saying the empty middle seats could reduce COVID exposure for passengers. That keeping the middle seats empty could uh, reduce exposure by maybe 60%. Yeah, but will the airlines listen? Many are already booking those middle seats. It's not likely that's going to stop again. Restaurants opening back up full or near full capacity, some spots, but they're running into the problem of finding enough workers. And remember the apps that were supposed to help with contact tracing and letting people know if they're around others who've tested positive for the virus? If you don't, you're far from alone. Yeah, we had big plans for those, right? Yeah. Let's start with the middle seats on the airlines. Joe Brancatelli, airline industry analyst, founder of JoeSentMe.com. So, Joe, CDC seems to be saying keeping the middle seat open, probably one of the safest things a carrier can do. But uh, they're probably not going to do it, huh? No, of course they're not. And in fairness to the airlines, this is my annual in fairness to the airlines day, um, at the beginning, when they were spraying and spritzing and cutting deals with Lysol and Purell and any company you could think of that had anything to do with disinfectants, we didn't actually know that you couldn't get it. Essentially, you could not get it by touching an object. <clears throat> the CDC let us know about that about three weeks ago. Now they're also saying what should be obvious to anyone, the less density on a plane the fewer people on a plane, the less chance someone with COVID might have to give it to you. Um, It's obvious the airlines are not going to spend the money anymore because they think they now can sell the seats, whereas six months ago they couldn't sell the seats. When we think about it, and we've done this this kind of exercise before, it's kind of like, okay, the air gets circulated through pretty often. It's cleaner than you think in the airplane, or at least most people think. So, it comes down to luck of the draw, and if the guy next to you has COVID, then you're in a really bad place because he's right next to you. But I start to wonder, okay, let's clear the middle seat, and now there's, what, three feet in between me and the person on the aisle if I'm at the window, but there's still a guy right in front of me who's got a, a couple inches of headrest, and that's all that's protecting me from him. So are you going to start to clear all the seats? Because it's just who I'm sitting next to, front, back, side to side, no matter what it is so i hopefully wear my masks and the air filtration system is working like it should and uh, if you're going to travel you're going to travel well yes and you better wear your mask because right now it doesn't matter what a state or a local rule is the federal rule for aircraft is you're on a plane you're wearing a mask so let's start with that you'll be wearing a mask for some time the air is generally cleaner because the airlines use most most aircraft have these things called HEPA filters, and they are better than, you know, most buildings, most homes. But you still come back to, in in my opinion, Mike, if you're going to gamble, do you want to gamble with somebody literally shoulder to shoulder with you, or do you want someone three feet away? Yes, you're right. It's only a couple of inches between you and the guy or the woman behind you with a headrest, but it might hit that headrest if they sneeze or cough. Or something. Now, I think I do believe the ultimate solution here is for everyone to get vaccinated. And I think when we get to the point where we're down to the vax deniers are the only ones who haven't been vaccinated. Kids have been vaccinated. Adults have been vaccinated. 
it may be in the airline's best interest to say you're not vaccinated, you're not flying. And you better prove to us that. All right. So you, you just uh, kind of introduced something that is uh, interesting. Not that the other stuff you were saying wasn't, <laughs> but but this is interesting. Uh, do you think, because I think airlines are pretty smart about what they're doing, and I think they're pretty smart in terms of long-term planning and what they're doing. Do you think that one of the reasons they're saying, oh, we're going to now sell all these seats and we're not going to, to keep the middle seat open is because they kind of figure that at some point a lot of people are going to go, gee, I don't want to risk flying on a packed plane, so maybe if I'm one of those people who don't want to get vaccinated, but I have to fly, so now I'm going to do it, and it makes it easier for them down the road to mandate vaccination, uh, in effect, vaccination passports. It, it's possible. Listen, this, is, this has gotten immediately political, of course. Um, you know, we have anyone who's traveled and. Charles, as a pilot, you know, and you've flown in in strange places around the world. There are vaccine passports of various kinds. You must have yellow fever, cholera in some cases. Most colleges will want you to prove you've had your shots. So I don't know why this one is a particular problem other than everyone's looking for a wedge issue politically. But I do think that the airlines have decided as we as we learned over the Easter weekend when Delta had some cancellations, that they promptly filled the middle seats on the flights they were running, even though they promised not to do that until May. So a lot of this is optics. A lot of this is uh, COVID theater, COVID kabuki. Um, but one thing we do know is that the airlines will always do what's best for them, not for the customer. That's a given, never changes before COVID, after COVID, they will do what's best for them. They think right now they can sell that middle seat, and they'll worry about six months down the road and passports and rules later. Joe Brancatelli, business travel airline industry analyst, founder, editor of the site, JoeSentMe.com. Restaurants around the U.S. opening back up to full or almost full capacity, both indoors, by the way, and outdoors. It's a welcome change to a year of opening and shutting down, and then opening again, but just outdoors, then partly indoors. But now they got a big problem. Not enough workers to do all the things a restaurant needs. Cooking, serving, managing, where they all go. With us is Carlos Gazatua, owner of Sergio's Family Restaurants, 13 locations across South Florida, and Lucy Thompson-Ramirez, co-founder of Pez Cantina in downtown Los Angeles. So, Carlos, let's start with you. How much of a problem has it been finding enough employees? Well, Florida is about whether for the rest of the country. We've been open, uh, schools have been open, and currently are on employment. Believe it or not, it's 4.8%. So we're having a crisis currently because as we looked at the symptoms of why people aren't coming back to work, we first thought it was fear. But now with the vaccine and how many people are out in Florida when you come visit Florida, we've kind of eliminated that as part of the scenario. We've also thought about labor, people leaving the industry with shortages, but that's happening across all industries, leaving us to finally think about, and really the only solution is the problem is the unemployment um, payments that are that are being issued. So you think people are, are getting those and they think they can make more off those or, or be comfortable at least for now and they don't need the job, at least like today, tomorrow? Yeah, such an interesting question. Here in Florida, we are one of the lowest paid, believe it or not, with state and federal benefits at $600. I mean, across the country, there's places that are $900 a week. So again, since we're open, it's really 
confounding the issue of can people really live off $600? But we do believe that there's a lot of people, what we've talked to our, our 25% of our staff has not come back, even though we've called them because they said that they're fine and they are doing other side jobs. So the question that is left with the industry, like the restaurant hospitality industry, is that we need so much staffing to produce and manufacture our product. We are in the manufacturing and service industry really in 30 minutes once you order. It's a very unique model, uh, restaurants. Okay, Lucy, uh, here in Los Angeles, are you having the same issues as Carlos is in southern Florida with getting people back uh, at your restaurant? And, and if so, what do you think the reason is? Well, I have to echo what Carlos just said. I feel like we've had such a hard time reopening and providing the proper service that is required to be fully staffed. Um, the demand is definitely there. We're getting busier and busier. And as a result, we're the ones getting the bad reviews because we can't keep up with this labor shortage. Um, I, we're a little behind Florida. Uh, you know, the vaccines are rolling out. So I think that, you know, I agree with him saying that it's no longer fear, but in California, um, unemployment uh, compensation can go all the way up to, I believe, 750 with the additional uh, $300 that the federal government is providing. So that's, I mean, that is a pretty generous amount, especially when people are doing um, side hustles to, to make ends meet. Um, I also find that I put, we've been, we've been reaching out to a lot of different platforms to, to post um, job listings. And I do get a ton of responses and, and lots of applicants. But the pattern I'm seeing is they're coming in, they're working one or two shifts, and then they abandon their, their posts altogether. And that's been really, really challenging for us. What do you make of the, the idea that people have left the industry, though? And, and look, the old joke, and it's true in a lot of cases, in this town anyway, is that if, if you were a you know, waitstaff or a host, then you were also uh, trying to make it as an actor. And you couldn't do either of those during the pandemic, so you might have found a whole new industry. Yeah, I feel like a lot of our staff members, maybe like 20 to 25 percent of them, um, some of them moved out of state and and just pursued a completely different industry altogether um, because California had so many restrictions. And then in other cases, um, yeah, I, I, I think that some people went back to school. They they're just pursuing a completely different career and maybe serving was just a way of uh, of fulfilling something else they were doing in in the interim. But it, it's definitely taken a big shift. We're not seeing the same market pool that we were seeing pre-COVID. Carlos, uh, you know, history has shown that when there is a so-called labor shortage, one way to rectify it is to offer more money. So are you doing that? Are you offering more money? And, and I would think that some people would be willing to work if you pay them more. You know, that's such a great question. And absolutely. I mean, right now it's an employee market. It's basically... Whatever you ask, you get. I mean, our, our rates have gone up here in Florida, and I know restaurants all across the country increasing rates, but it's not enough um, because the reality is we are not meeting the, the demand to bring them back. I think the biggest issue for solutions for, for Congress and for governors across the, the country is are we going to try to run this out to August, at the end of August when payments are, are stopped, or are we going to try to solve the problem? I only see two solutions going forward. You either try to enforce the unemployment laws that are currently actually on the books, but I don't think they're going to have the appetite for that, or let them keep the money if they work. Give them, go ahead and give them 75% or 
or 100% of the money if they work. At the end of the day, they're going to spend it anyways. So small business owners like us that are just trying to feed the community, we're cutting down sections. I have hour waits in my restaurants. And it's not because um, you can't find a seat. In fact, if you look into our dining room, you'll see a whole sections that are open. But we just can't fulfill the need. So we have to close it because it's not like uh, Lucy says, we'll get bad reviews. So this is an obstacle, not just in the restaurant industry. The Wall Street Journal just came out saying that there is not enough job for blue collar workers. So I don't buy that people left the industry. Um, I know some percent might have gone into the medical field, but I think that the true issue here is that people are on the sidelines and we got to figure out a way to jump them back. Look, the reality is that the unemployment was great for people who lost jobs and could not work during this pandemic. The question is, is as the pendulum switches, as the virus has changed, we have to change strategic tactics to help us, right, survive. So now we have to do the same thing for small businesses. We know that this was great help for those who didn't have a job. Now we've got to make an adjustment. So, Lucy, you're here in L.A. If somebody's looking for work, you got something for them? Absolutely. We've got openings all across the board. And quite honestly, I mean, our servers make a minimum wage of $15 plus tips. And those tips are a lot more than $15 an hour. So they're making between $30 and $40 an hour, which in my opinion is a pretty good living. But uh, if 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 that could be a tactic that, that Congress could address where they can actually keep the unemployment and continue to work, that would be amazing because the truth is it's exactly what it is. It's a stimulus package and it really is stimulating the economy. I mean, people are eating out and drinking and, and enjoying um, the opening of restaurants quite faster than I anticipated. And, and we're really, we rejoice that because as small business owners, we do rely on that. So I, I don't know what the, what the solution is, um, but please send anybody our way. We're in downtown LA financial district, Bunker Hill, Pez Cantina. All right. Lucy Thompson Ramirez at Pez in downtown LA. Carlos Yazatua, owner of Sergio's Family Restaurants, 13 locations in South Florida. Coming up after the short break, contact tracing. There's an app for that. You probably don't know or even remember. Health officials from the start of the pandemic have said that contact tracing is a major key to containing the virus. There have been apps developed to let people know if they've been possibly exposed to COVID. There's one in Pennsylvania. It's been out six months, but about 93% of the state hasn't downloaded it. Jason Thatcher, professor in the Department of Management, Information Systems, Fox School of Business at uh, Temple University, he was on with KYW's Jim Melwertz about how officials could have done things differently and get more people to use that app. I looked at a little bit of the conversation that's going on around the, dis- the distribution of the app, and the design of the apps. And it sounds like they, they did a lot of things right. Okay. The first thing they did right is they forecast how many people they needed to use it for it to have it make an impact, right? And they ran the appropriate models and whatnot. And that all makes sense to me. Okay. Um, that's good science. That's what we would do in an, in an academic journal paper, right? We'd go, okay, if we hit this number, we're going to get this this number of reduced infections and, and all is all of a sunny in Philadelphia. It looks to me, they, they also, when they weren't getting the numbers they needed, they expanded the audience, right? So so they when, when they went 18 up, which was appropriate because you don't want kids downloading apps that, that track their personal data without the parents knowing. And then they extended that with parental consent. That struck me as a really good move too. So I'll give them a lot of points for for doing the upfront work to know what they needed to reach. I'd give them a lot of points for doing the deployment right in terms of privacy disclosures. But there are some questions I can't figure out. 
Um, one thing that I can't figure out in, in their description is we know that the people's motivation to share and disclose personal data or respond to healthcare healthcare type questions. There's this theory called protective motivation theory where I respond to threats to me. And and in looking at the calls for action for people to do this, it's about people responding to threats to society. And we know that doesn't work very well. So so when you look at smoking, for example, the, the research on protective motivation says, you know, worrying about secondhand smoke around the people around you doesn't really drive smokers to quit. Smokers quit smoking because they don't they don't want cancer. They see graphic pictures, they see images, they see a number of other things, or it just gets too expensive. And and which kind of taps into two different motivational structures. One is cost, the other is fear, right? And maybe because the pandemic is already pretty pretty fraught with fear and anxiety, they didn't tap into those motivational structures. They didn't give us a good financial reason to to download the app and share our information. And they also didn't scare us into it in terms of directly, it'll protect you better. They said it'll protect society better. And that makes it hard to get people to download stuff where they're disclosing their personal information, right? So I'm not saying they did it wrong. I'm saying there are things they, they could have thought about or projected and built into the campaign to get it adopted more widely. There's a lot in there to unpack. That's really interesting stuff. I, I guess, you know, now, now that we're here and now that they're here, yeah. having seen this and, and with everything that you just said, what would your advice be to them to kind of try to, to kickstart or try to jumpstart it, I guess, from here? Well, they're at 7%. If I, I remember the numbers read, they need 15%, right? To, to put an appreciable dent in tracking. So the, so the first thing is they've got to personalize it to local communities, make it really relevant to people. So, so my community is at 12%. One more person downloads it, gets us up that much more, makes us all safer so they can start feeling the personal relevance of it because it's my town. Right. And because they're tracking, if, if I understand properly, they're tracking not only who I talk to, they're tracking where I am through that app. Because they're tracking that, that should be something they should, at this point, they've got enough data. They're able to tell people in communities, this is how your community is doing. So target the message, right? And that should make it more personally relevant. Because if I know everybody around me is doing it, more people are likely to, to take, take up that, take up the, take up the application. The second thing, and I, I'm not sure because I haven't seen polling data on this or survey data on this. I'm pretty curious as to whether people, how people trust the government in Philadelphia and in, and in the surrounding areas and across the state. And as a newcomer to the area, I hear a lot of rhetoric around some people love certain politicians, other people hate other politicians. And there's, there's a lot of rancor right now post, post, the post, the post presidential election. They've, they've got to do something to get people to trust them, to trust the state that they'll use the data appropriately, right? Like, like when you think about tracking your, your day-to-day movements and who you talk to, I don't think anyone's very comfortable with sharing that kind of information, right? So absent that motivation, uh, a financial motivation, like, uh, you know, if you do this, we'll give you a $2 break on your taxes, income taxes, you know, something small, which the state could do. It's not easy, but they could do, right? Or which, which would nudge people to do it or something that makes it personally relevant in their community. Absent that trust building, it's, pretty, it's a pretty tough reach. Honestly, so they've, they've got to convince people that that data is not going to be used in a way that's going to get them in trouble or, or in some kind of malevolent way or potentially malevolent way. Like, like think through think through in your head this scenario of, OK, I've, I've got this app arm that's tracking where I am. It's tracking who I'm near and other people on proximity to me uh, that have the app, too. Right. There's a crime committed nearby. 
a police officer on the back end, despite all the different assurances we have, this will never happen. A police officer on the back end figures this out and goes, hey, can I get this data? And someone just shares it. Suddenly you're getting calls about things that happened that you're proximal to or you were near. I can see that logic playing out in people's heads, right? And so, so making sure that people understand how the information is just going to be used for healthcare and for contact tracing for health reasons tied to COVID really needs, really needs to be underscored and pushed. Is there a way to, to guarantee that and, and not only to guarantee it, but also to, I mean, that's, <laughs> this is like the million dollar question, right? Like, yeah. 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 Right? If, if you and I could figure this out, we wouldn't be probably sitting here. We'd, you know, but is there a way to guarantee uh, when you're putting together, you know, an app or, or, or uh, your, your privacy statement or, or the declaration of how you're using data to guarantee that, that that stuff isn't saved or isn't tracked or, or is that just what it is? Well, well you want to save it and you want to track it, but you know, all of this data should probably fall under HIPAA. Which is which? Which preserves the privacy of you and your relationship between a doctor, right? And and if they can assure people that those standards are being met, and enough people are aware of what HIPAA is, because every time we go to the doctor, we sign our, sign off, right? I mean, it's it's something that 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 uh, people are aware of their healthcare data. If they can project that, and if the goal is fifteen percent, that becomes much more achievable because they're tapping into a familiar source of trust. The other thing that they could possibly do, and I haven't gone to the website and, and, and done a deep dive for this, okay? It would be really interesting to see what they're telling people about where the data is stored, the, the standards for, for who has access to it, so people have some transparency or, or, or an access, and, and which public agencies or actors are able to use that data. Because COVID-19 is a little different, right? This is an emergency. It is a pandemic. It is a national and it is a state and local crisis. So there might be times where they need the help of someone from law enforcement to, to go and track people down and, and do contact tracing or having someone else help with the contract tracing, right? But making it clear at what point you would see a referral to somebody outside of the medical group dealing with this and making that transparent to people would go a long ways to building trust. Maybe you've seen the hide the pain Herald meme. It's a picture of an older man with a beard who's smiling, but with sad, pained eyes. It looks like he's trying to hold back the, the pain, hence the name hide the pain Herald. Well, that picture was mistakenly used as the face of Stockholm, Sweden's COVID-19 <laughs> vaccination booking website. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. You know, if you don't think you know this picture, you know this picture. It's on the, Google it on the internet, you'll know this guy. Well, it got the uh, stock photo from a photo agency database. One official says they didn't know it was a meme until later. The uh, picture has since been changed. Sweden with the accidental meme. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.